This is the Scottish Football Citizen, bringing you the best of Scottish football from the past. I'm Andy Kerr, and this week I'm joined by Robert Harvey as we look back at Scotland's first ever foray into a World Cup. Prepare yourself. As many of us know, following Scotland isn't always the easiest thing to do, and it turns out it was no different in 1954. Before we delve into this week's main topic, we have a bit of trivia for you. Who is the oldest player to make their debut for Scotland? We'll give you some time to think about it and then give you the answer at the end of this episode. It's 1950 and Scotland have qualified for their first ever World Cup following a second place finish in the Home Internationals Championship behind England. After codifying the game years before and exporting it all across the world, this was a chance for one of the originators of the sport of football to shine on the world stage at the tournament in Brazil. Brazil was emerging as one of the world's finest national teams and they had even constructed a brand new stadium in the Maracanã, which had overtaken Hampden Park as the largest stadium in the world. There was good news too for Scotland in terms of their potential opposition, as previous finalists Czechoslovakia and Hungary had decided not to take part, alongside the Soviet Union. Surely with these formidable teams not competing, it would boost Scotland's chances. Well... It wouldn't. Scotland's second place finish in the Home Internationals had prompted the SFA's chairman George Graham to decline FIFA's invitation to the World Cup. The SFA did not feel they should be sending what they viewed as an inferior side to represent the country against the world's best. While England's FA had committed to sending them to the tournament if they finished within the top two of the Home Internationals, Scotland had no such plans. England's captain, Billy Wright, convinced Scotland's captain, George Young, and his players to plead with the SFA board, but the players' pleas fell on deaf ears. Graham could not be convinced, and while England went on to play Spain, Chile, and the United States, Scotland stayed at home and could only imagine what might have been. The reason given by the SFA for not going was that the team would have to travel a considerable distance by air, which would have been prohibitively expensive at the time. Ireland and Portugal turned their invitations down too for the same reason, so Scotland were not alone. In the modern era, this move would be unthinkable, especially in the 21st century, where Scotland have yet to qualify for a World Cup since France 1998. However, it was the way things were in 1950, which, after all, was only five years after the end of World War II. In 1954, the World Cup would be held in Switzerland, and once again the Home International Championship would be used to determine which team from Britain would qualify. Again, the top two teams would go through. Scotland got off to a good start at Windsor Park in Belfast with a 3-1 win over Northern Ireland, 
thanks to a double from Charlie Fleming and a single goal from John Henderson. This put two points on the board. Scotland then had a home game at Hamden against Wales. This ended in a 3-3 draw. Scotland's goal scorers were Alan Brown, Bobby Johnston and Laurie Riley, while Ivor Allchurch and a John Charles double scored for Wales. Scotland now just needed a win over the old enemy, England, at Hamden to ensure second place. Unfortunately for Scotland, it was to be England's day. They won 4-2 to win the championship. Scotland's scorers were Alan Brown and Willie Ormond, while the England scorers were Ivor Broadus, Johnny Nichols, Ronnie Allen and Jimmy Mullen. Despite the loss, a victory for Northern Ireland over Wales was enough to keep Scotland in second place with a total of three points. This time, the SFA did not object to a second place team competing with the best of the rest of the world. Perhaps this was helped by the fact Switzerland is a bit closer to Scotland than Brazil is. Scotland would finally be able to show what they are made of on the biggest football stage in the world. Things had moved on slightly as the decade progressed. In June 1954, this would see the foundation of UEFA and soon afterwards the European Cup with the top teams in Europe keen to compete against each other. The SFA also appointed their first ever national team manager in Andy Beattie. This replaced the old method of a committee picking the teams. Beattie was known as an Anglo-Scots and played all his club football in England, despite his Aberdeenshire upbringing. In his time as a player, he spent all his senior career with Preston North End, where he played with Bill Shankly. As with many players of his era, the Second World War meant that he did not make nearly as many appearances for the Lily Whites as he should have done. In 1954, he was managing Huddersfield Towns, but felt that he could not turn down the opportunity of managing the Scotland national team. His first match in charge of Scotland was a 4-2 defeat to England at Hamden. And then a friendly match was also played at Hamden against Norway to prepare the team for going to Switzerland. BT's team that day was formed mostly of Aberdeen players, with a few Preston North End and Celtic players also included. A goal from George Hamilton was enough to beat Norway 1-0 in front of around 26,000 spectators. A return fixture was then held in Norway and this finished in a one-each draw. Another friendly was played against Finland and this ended in a 2-1 win for Scotland, with goals from the Hibs' famous five pairing of Willie Ormond and Bobby Johnston. Looking back from a contemporary viewpoint, it's hard to fathom some of the unusual decisions made by the football authorities in Scotland at the time. 
Andy Beattie was allowed to take a squad of 18 players to the tournament as per FIFA rules. And the friendly matches his side had played allowed him to assess his potential pool of players. He had some setbacks, however, in that Rangers were on a tour of North America and so the Scotland captain George Young and his teammate Sammy Cox were unavailable. In their place came Willie Cunningham and Tommy Doherty from Preston North End. Celtic only allowed three of their players to travel in addition to this. The other big setback was the SFA's unusual decision to only allow 13 players to board the plane to Switzerland. Tommy Doherty slammed the association years later, saying, We only took 13 players. The rest of the plane was filled with SFA committee members and their wives. This meant that players such as Paddy Buckley of Aberdeen, George Farm of Blackpool, and the famous five trio of Bobby Johnston, Laurie Rayleigh and Gordon Smith of Hibernian would all miss out. It seemed as if it was being made as hard as possible for Scotland to have any chance of doing well. The 13 players who made it onto the plane were Fred Martin, Aberdeen, Willie Cunningham, Preston North End, Jock Aird, Burnley, Bobby Evans, Celtic, Tommy Doherty, Preston North End, Jimmy Davidson, Patrick Thistle, Doug Cowie, Dundee, John McKenzie, Patrick Thistle, George Hamilton, Aberdeen, Alan Brown, Blackpool, Neil Mockin, Celtic, Willie Fernie, Celtic, and Willie Ormond, Hibernian. Another error made by the SFA was with the type of kit the team would wear. When you think of things that are stereotypically Swiss, you probably imagine cheese, chocolate, and alpine mountains. The association therefore decided that despite it being the summer, the team would be best to wear their winter kits. They had forgotten to consider that a Swiss summer can be surprisingly hot, and this would lead to incredibly uncomfortable experiences for the players. Heatstroke would be a real threat for the Scots, while their opponents would have no such issues in their lightweight short-sleeved shirts. The players also complained about their boots being out of date in comparison to other teams. While Adi Dassler of Adidas had brought the West Germans new boots with removable studs that would suit all manner of pitches, Tommy Doherty lamented, even our boots were wrong. We weren't prepared. The 1954 tournament had an unusual format. Teams would be placed into groups of four and each group would have games between seeded and unseeded teams. Scotland were to be unseeded and would play against Austria and Uruguay. Another odd feature of the group matches was that draws after 90 minutes would go to extra time. This format also led to teams having to draw lots to determine group placings, so it's no surprise that this format did not last. On the 16th of June 1954, Scotland would play their first match at a World Cup against Austria in Zurich at the Hardturm Stadion, 
home of FC Grasshopper. While Austria were no longer the force of the world-famous Wunderteam that had been broken up when Hitler annexed Austria in 1938, they still had fantastic players such as the legendary Ernst Happel, Gerhard Hanapi, Ernst Ockwerk and Eric Probst. Alan Breck of the Glasgow Evening Times wrote a preview of Scotland's match against Austria in that day's edition and said the following. The Swiss and the visiting experts here cannot see anything else but an Austrian victory. Scotland is not regarded as even capable of providing a surprise. In the face of all that, it will be really wonderful if Scotland or England go far in the competition. I hope our fellows put up a fair show at Zurich tonight. If they hold the Austrians to a draw, Scotland will be proud. The team that Andy Beattie selected to play Austria was Fred Martin, Jock Aird, Willie Cunningham, captain, Tommy Doherty, Doug Cowie, Jimmy Davidson, Alan Brown, Willie Fernie, John McKenzie, Neil Morgan, and Willie Ormond. The game kicked off at 6pm local time. The last time Scotland had played Austria in 1950, it ended in a 4-0 loss for the Scots and was a bad-tempered game. This match was no different and the Austrians complained vociferously to the Belgian referee about some of Tommy Doherty's tackling. Willie Ormond and Gerhard Hanapi were also at each other for most of the game. The breakthrough for Austria came in the 33rd minute, when Alfred Corner crossed the ball into the box for Erich Probst to put the ball past Fred Martin from close range. Austria were leading 1-0, and despite Scotland having chances to equalise, the game would finish that way. Austria looked to have a good chance of qualifying, and it looked very unlikely that Scotland would be able to salvage themselves. Alan Breck's Evening Times match report the following day regarded the Scots as being hard done by, with the Arsenal manager Tom Whitaker saying he had never felt so proud of a British side as this Scotland one. In the modern era, we're used to the idea of associating glorious failure with the national team, and this result proves it was no modern phenomenon. The Scotland party then went to Basel to watch a thrilling 4-4 draw between England and Belgium and then to prepare for a huge match against Uruguay that was all or nothing. If the 1954 World Cup for Scotland had been a game of poker, then Andy Beattie would have not only had the cards heavily stacked against him, all of his opponents would have been able to see his cards too. Almost everything that could have gone wrong did go wrong, and he resigned following the Austria game in protest of how he and the players had been treated by the Blazers. Among everything else, he slated the association for the way they chose to reward the players for playing in the tournament, with their choice of a £15 appearance fee or getting to keep their jerseys after the tournament. Most players chose to keep their jerseys. 
The players were now without a manager for their crunch match against the world champions of Uruguay, who had just beaten Czechoslovakia 2-0. It was just as well the committee were with the team in Switzerland, because they would be picking the team again. Surely things could only get better. On the 19th of June, Scotland took to the pitch at the St Jakob Stadion in Basel to face Uruguay. The game kicked off at 4.50pm local time in blistering heat and it was an absolute debacle from start to finish for Scotland. Uruguay shot out of the traps quickly and absolutely demolished the 11 Scots. When the referee blew the final whistle, Scotland had lost 7-0 thanks to doubles from Oscar Miguez, Julio Abadi and a hat-trick from Carlos Borges. The match was a sad summation of Scotland's preparation and handling of the whole tournament. John Mackenzie, known by Partick Thistle fans as the Firhill Flyer, was one of the players on that day. He later said, Did I play in that game? I certainly didn't touch the ball very often. It was so hot and our kit was unbearable. I lost about half a stone in weight. Willie Cunningham said of the defeat, I will remember it all my life. And the Evening Times stated that Uruguay played football not in our world. Uruguay would go on to the semi-finals and would finish fourth behind Scotland's earlier opponents, Austria. The final was a brilliant match between Hungary and West Germany that became known as the Miracle of Bern, where West Germany, led by Kaiserslautern's Fritz Walter, came back from 2-0 down to win 3-2 against the great Hungary side that contained Sandor Koskis and Ferenc Puskas. As for Scotland, it was sadly a case of two games, zero goals scored, eight goals conceded. It was clear that nobody in the Scotland camp was aware of just how much preparation was required to play in an international tournament, and this would have to change if Scotland were to have any chance of qualifying for the next World Cup in 1958. While the SFA realised that appointing a permanent manager was a necessary step forward as the game modernised, they would have a long way to go in catching up to the best sides in the world. It was clear from the domestic game that Scotland had good players, but they had been badly let down by the lack of organisation. On his return to Britain, Tommy Doherty was asked if he felt his ship had come in, having played in an FA Cup final and captained his country against Uruguay. Aye. Just my luck I was at the airport. It's worth noting that while the national team had a miserable time in Switzerland, it wasn't all doom and gloom for Scotland overall. As well as the national team, Charlie Faultless also represented Scotland as a referee at the tournament where he officiated a one-all draw between Brazil and Yugoslavia in the group stages. He also refereed a famous quarter-final where the score ended Austria 7 Switzerland 5. To date, this remains the highest scoring game that has ever been played at a World Cup.
the 1950s would end up being remembered as a good decade for Scottish football, with serious competition for both the league and the Cups. However, this tournament stands out as a low point, but at least Scotland had made it to the top table now and things could only get better in future tournaments. Or so you would think. This is Scotland after all. At the start of the episode, we asked you the question, who is the oldest Scotland player to make their international debut? The answer is Ronnie Simpson. He was 37 years and 196 days old when he made his debut. The game was a famous 3-2 win for Scotland in 1967 at Wembley. Goals from Dennis Law, Bobby Lennox and Jim McCallioog defeated the world champions. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Scottish Football Citizen. Subscribe to us on your favourite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. And join us again next week when we'll be looking back at more of the best of Scottish football from the past. The Scottish Football Citizen is written, edited and produced by Andy Kerr for Football Memories Scotland in association with Alzheimer Scotland and the Scottish Football Museum. Additional contributions from Robert Harvey, Jim Orr and Richard McBrearty. Additional material from the Times of London, BBC Sports Scotland, the Scottish Football Blog, the Away Section and the Evening Times. <laughs>